facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. An absolutely wonderful Wednesday to you. So happy that you're with me on the show. It is June the 14th, 2023. And so glad that you're talking to me. And you can do so directly by calling this number toll free 888 914 9149. 888 914 9149. You can also email the program klcale at relevantradio.com. Good to hear from you always. And you can follow me on Twitter at Kale Clark, C A L E Clark with an E. Well, so much to get to today. And yesterday we were talking about St. Anthony. I was hoping to, to, to get to some of the stuff, but we had so many amazing phone calls from you about the feast days of St. Anthony and what was lost, uh, had been found, everything from relationships to wedding rings to you, you name it. There's always great St. Anthony stories to be had. But there was something else that I wanted to talk about, and I'll get to that in just a second. I want to remind you also that uh, later in the show, I hope to talk about something called the magic window. I don't want to reveal what that is just yet. I don't want to open the magic window just yet. So uh, I hope to get to that, uh, time permitting. And I'm also going to talk a little bit about uh, an L.A. story. Uh, hey, you thought the Dodgers were a bigoted organization when it comes to Catholics? Well, there's another L.A.-based uh, sporting venue, if you will, that's in the news this week because it's hosting... The United States Open, I'm talking about L.A. Country Club. You will not believe the stories behind this one, if you haven't heard them. Uh, they're interesting, so I'm going to share that later. We're also going to have our staff picks for the U.S. Open. That should be fun, a little fun segment. But first, I want to deal with this, and, and every once in a while, it seems like every few weeks I'm having to deal with this. Once again, uh, somebody has taken to Twitter and has asserted that Jesus never existed. And this has become more and more frequent in recent years, and I'm not quite sure why this is. For and I'm going to explain how incredibly insane this is to even make this suggestion. But there's a Twitter user that, and this this somehow went viral. Uh, this person apparently is an archaeological student, it seems, and uh, her name is Lady A. I don't know what her real name is, but um, she uh, posts under the Twitter name Lady A. And uh, she is uh, involved in archaeology, which also starts with A, so maybe that's where she came up with this. Uh, pretty clever if that's the case. But uh, she uh, posted a tweet the other day saying, and this was on uh, the 11th, just a, just a few days ago, and the tweet simply says, Jesus didn't exist. And then she posted an image with this tweet, and the image said, archaeological evidence of Jesus does not exist. There is no definitive physical or archaeological evidence of the existence of Jesus. There's nothing conclusive. So that, that's the image that she posted, and then her, her tagline was, Jesus didn't exist. Okay, for, for one thing, she might be right about that there is no archaeological evidence of Jesus, although that, that itself is disputed, but you're making a huge leap uh, that is not warranted by saying, okay, just because there's no archaeological evidence, that doesn't mean that Jesus himself didn't exist. So anyway, she is getting roasted on Twitter by a lot of professors, a lot of historians. They're like, what are you talking about? Um, this isn't how history works. And then, I, I don't know, she seems to be being, I don't know whether she's clueless about this stuff or whether she's being antagonistic, disingenuous. She seems to be somewhat anti-Christian. Um, 
people are saying, hey, this isn't how history works. Um, show me physical or archaeological evidence that Homer existed. And she's like, why? Um, disagree all you want. There's no proof that Jesus existed. Um, somebody else said, uh, it's not surprising that archaeological evidence of a single individual is hard to come by. And she's like, special pleading fallacy. Um, anyways, there's a professor named uh, Dr. Laura Robinson who really just kind of uh, had enough here. I'm kind of scrolling through trying to find her uh, her response to this. Uh, where is it? I'll eventually find it. Um, there's a lot of responses to this. This has really uh, created a ton of comments. Uh, anyways, I'll, I'll find that eventually. But here, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know. Okay, the, when we're talking about archaeology, and I've worked on archaeological digs in Israel, you guys know that. Archaeology is about finding the material remains, the physical remains of a culture. And it is true that when it comes to archaeological evidence for Jesus, we don't have much to go on. And what we do have to go on is fairly disputed. I'm talking about um, allegedly, you know, many, many, a couple of churches claim to have the crown of thorns, or at least part of the crown of thorns that Jesus wore or pieces of the true cross. They're all over the place. Um, are, are any of them legitimate? We actually talked about that recently on, on the program. The Shroud of Turin. Now, this is where it gets a little bit more intriguing to me because I, I personally believe that the Shroud of Turin is the burial shroud of Jesus. But even if it wasn't, I think there's lots of good evidence for this. That's another show for another day. But even if it wasn't, even if that is proven to be a forgery or hoax, which I don't think it is. We still have tons of evidence, tons of evidence for the existence of Jesus. In fact, uh, Bart Ehrman, Dr. Bart Ehrman, noted skeptic, who's a very, very good scholar. I mean, he knows his stuff. He wrote a book called Did Jesus Exist? And he, by the way, this guy is super skeptical when it comes to the scriptures and all kinds of things. But even he says, essentially, of course Jesus existed. Now, he, he would be one of the people who would say there, there's scant, if, if none, negligible archaeological evidence for Jesus, any remnants left behind. But, uh, but that he existed? Absolutely, 100%. In fact, anybody who's, who is a professor of ancient history, uh, and here's, here's a guy who actually has a, a PhD in ancient history. This guy's name is John Dixon. John Dixon... I don't know if he still holds this position, but he used to be the senior research fellow at Macquarie University, Department of Ancient History. He put a for, he, he put a challenge one, out there once on social media, and he said, if anybody can provide a name of a single, just one, a single university professor who holds a PhD in ancient history, who denies the existence of Jesus, I will eat my Bible. I will eat my Bible live on social media. I'll eat a page from my Bible. <laughs> so far, nobody's taken them up on this because there isn't anybody. The fact of the matter is there is no credible historian who has a teaching position at a legit university who has a PhD in ancient history. No historian denies the existence of Jesus. Now, a lot of them will say, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe he's the son of God. I don't believe in his teachings. I don't believe in the Catholic Church, whatever. They'll, they might say that. They might believe in all kinds of different things religiously, or they might be of no religious persuasion at all. But none of them will say that Jesus of Nazareth didn't exist. And we have really good warrant. We have really good uh, 
reasonings uh, for believing that, that Jesus did really historically exist, even outside of the Bible, even outside of the Bible. But again, this position is becoming more and more, you hear this in, in popular media more and more. Uh, Tom Harper, who passed away some years ago, uh, he was a famous public commentator in, in Canada and uh, a lapsed Christian himself. He, he once said that historians couldn't give, quote, a shred of historical evidence for the existence of Jesus. That is simply not the case. That's absolutely, it's, it's quite a claim. It's quite a claim. And uh, my friend Greg Manette has compiled a, a list of um, rebuttals to this in his book, The Wrong Jesus. He's done a really good job with this. What's interesting is that Greg said in his book that nobody before the 18th century ever denied that Jesus existed. Now, it's become fairly commonplace. It's still pretty rare. But nobody before the 18th century A.D. even suggested that Jesus never existed. Who is the first person to do so? Who is the first public mythicist, if you will, uh, who denies the existence of Christ? Well, it was a guy from France named Constantine. And it's kind of ironic because the Emperor Constantine uh, did convert to Christianity. And he, he delayed his baptism until much later because he was, oh, I might have some sinning I want to do ahead of time. No, that's not a good attitude, Constantine. Anyways, a, a Frenchman named Constantine Francois Volney published an essay in the, in the 18th century who said that Jesus was a myth. And, and so nobody ever suggested this. For the, for, for the first 1,700 years of the faith, nobody thought that Jesus was not an actual human person who walked on this planet. So what, what, is, what is the evidence for the, for the existence of Jesus? Okay, for, for a second here, let's put the Bible aside. Because someone might say, well, of course the Bible talks about Jesus, but I don't believe that the Bible is the word of God. Fine, fine. Okay, I think it is, and there's great warrant for believing that too. But let's put that aside for just a second. And let's talk about, is there anything that we can find outside of the New Testament that talks about Jesus of Nazareth? You're listening to The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149. All right. Oh, let's take a quick call here. Let's take a quick call before we get into this. Let's go to Patrick in Omaha. Omaha! As Peyton Manning would say. Patrick, how you doing? Good, thanks. Yeah, this person shows utter ignorance of the fact. I mean, Christ was risen from the dead. There's not going to be any evidence, archaeological mm -hmm. evidence. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, when they're talking about discovering physical remnants of Jesus, you're absolutely right. Of course, there aren't any because he was resurrected from the dead and he ascended into heaven in his resurrected body. But I think, I think she's probably referring to more than just that. Like, uh, and this would be, again, for any ancient person, it would be incredibly rare to find anything associated with that person, like clothes that they wore or, um, any physical artifact that, that would be associated with that person, even outside of their, their tomb. Uh, now of course, Jesus' body isn't there, as you said, quite rightly, Patrick. So, uh, I think it's probably a little bit more broad than just um, just his physical remains, uh, allegedly. They're, they're probably talking about anything, anything, um, archaeologically speaking, that might turn up. So, but but thanks for pointing that. Out. I really appreciate that call. So, what, let's let's look at this. Is there evidence for Jesus outside the New Testament? And again, you're not going to find archaeological remains except for Shroud of Turin, maybe a couple other things. 
Uh, we can get into that another time. But, but it might surprise you to know that Jesus is talked about in a lot of places outside of the Bible. And in fact, uh, these are not Christians, by and large, who, who wrote this stuff. In fact, a lot of them were downright hostile to the faith. So this is actually good for us because these are hostile witnesses. The best witness you can hope to get in a court of law is somebody who's hostile to your cause who proves your point. So this is... um. Oh, by the way, Patrick Alog, our crack researcher, John Dixon, the guy who said he'd eat his Bible. If you could find any uh, historian with a PhD who claims Jesus didn't exist, he's now at Wheaton College in Illinois, not too far, not too far from the headquarters of Relevant Radio. Be, you know what? Maybe next time I'm in town, I'll have him on the show. That'd be kind of fun. He's a distinguished scholar in public Christianity. Uh, that's kind of an interesting uh, uh, feel public, because Christianity is public. And, and this is this is part of what's claimed, by the way in the Acts of the Apostles, that this was not done in a corner. I mean, the, 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 the crucifixion of Christ happened publicly for all to see. Uh, this was not in a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, as I like to say. So, all right, so who, who are some of these people in, the, in uh, Jesus' time, or roughly thereabout, who wrote about him outside of the Bible? Well, we could go with Pliny the Younger. And there was a guy named Pliny the Elder as well, there was. But Pliny the Younger was a Roman official in the province of Bithynia. And he had a problem. And so he, he wrote to the emperor because he had an issue with Christians, Catholic Christians in his neighborhood. And he's wondering what to do about them. They seem like horrible people. Here's what, they, here's what uh, Pliny the Younger says they were into. Quote, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. Now, what day do you think that might be? Sunday. Right? And they were, of course, celebrating the resurrection. Um, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but of an ordinary and innocent kind. So, okay, what Pliny is basically, okay, so, wow, if you're, if you're a government official, these are, I, I don't want people like this in my territory. Oh, my goodness, they've, they, they've bound themselves by an oath. They're never going to do anything bad. They're never going to steal. They're never going to commit adultery. They're never going to commit fraud. We don't want these people as citizens. Uh, they're never going to falsify their word. Never, uh, uh, no, they, they seem like obviously upstanding, fine individuals because they're holding to the teaching of Jesus Christ. And so it, he points out a lot of things in his letter. He points out the fact that they were singing hymns to Christ as to a God. So worship of Jesus. Okay, even non-Christians could see this. And so they had a moral code, obviously, uh, the moral teaching of the church. And then they would, they would kind of split up, and then they come back together to partake of food. And what food do you think that might be? The Eucharist. This is, of course, the Eucharistic banquet. And in those days, it was part of an actual meal. It was kind of a bigger feast where there would be, you know, other foods there. And, and at some point, they would celebrate the Mass, okay? And uh, it was a little bit different, obviously. Like Once the church went public, became the official religion of the Roman Empire, the church started getting its own buildings. There were a lot of people there. They couldn't do it like they did at the beginning, which was kind of like house churches, they called them. Uh, smaller groups of people, relatively speaking, in a city, in a town, 
uh, who would gather. Um, and so it seemed to be split up a little bit. Um, I guess you could say this could be sort of a, a, the liturgy of the word, some worship, as well as the Eucharist coming later. But he says it's, an, it's innocent food. It's ordinary food. And why would he say that? Because there's a big rumor going around in the Roman Empire that Christians were cannibals, that the early Catholic Christians were, in fact, cannibals. Why? Because there are all these rumors there. They're eating the flesh and drinking the blood of some dude named Jesus. What? There's there even some wild rumors that they were eating infants. Okay, c- clearly not the case. But, but that just shows you it's kind of a backhanded compliment to Eucharistic realism. So they knew it was, it was not ordinary food, but they, they thought it was ordinary food just from, okay, it's, it doesn't it just looks like bread, but that is the Eucharist, right? It looks like bread, tastes like bread, smells like bread. It's not anymore. After the consecration, it is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. All right, so that's plenty of the younger. But then we could also look at Tacitus. Now, Tacitus was maybe the greatest Roman historian of all time. And he wrote this in his famous work called, uh, by the way, Plenty the Younger. He was writing around, he lived between 62 and 113 AD. Okay, so late first century, early second century. Tacitus writing uh, in in what's called the Annals in chapter 15, verse 44. Tacitus lived from 60 AD to 120 AD. Tacitus said, Christus, and and that's like a, a Latinized version of Christ, and by the way, Christ is not Jesus' last name, obviously. That means Messiah, Christos. Um, Mashiach, Yeshua HaMashiach, that's what it would be in Hebrew, Jesus the Messiah. But Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator, Pontius Pilatus. Okay, so right there, he verifies what we say in the creed. In the Nicene Creed. So he, he's crucified under Pontius Pilate. The reign of Tiberius. He was the Roman emperor at that time. And so this is checking up with what we know from the New Testament. And then Tacitus says, And the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself. He's referring to Rome where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue, you know, or find a hearing and become popular. So basically Tacitus is saying that he calls it a superstition. He thinks it's, he's not, basically he's not a Christian, nor is he a fan of the church either. Obviously he thinks it's a superstition. He thinks it's nasty. So he is appalled that people believe in this stuff. He calls it a disease. And so, but he's backing up a lot of facts that we know about Jesus. Suetonius, another Roman historian, lived from 75 AD to 160 AD, said this. He said, because the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. Now, who's Crestus? Crestus is, again, this is a, a crude reference to Jesus. It's kind of, a, again, a Latinized form of Christ. He's talking about the famous expulsion of the Jews from Rome, and he's kind of associating it with, with Jesus and no doubt there were disputes about you know Jesus and whether he's really the Messiah, all that stuff. Another one, another Roman historian, Mera Bar Serapion, 2nd or 3rd century. He wrote this in a letter. He said, quote, The Jews, in executing their wise king, were ruined and driven from their land, and now live in complete dispersion. Nor did the wise king die for good. He lived on in the teaching 
which he had given. Okay, so he, he references the execution of the wise king. So that, that's, again, confirmation that Jesus was crucified as king of the Jews. That was what was the title that was put on the placard. Uh, it's called the titulus over the cross. And so he, he admits that Jesus was executed. What about another one? Well, actually, let's say this one for after the break, because this is like maybe the granddaddy of them all, and there's a lot of dispute about this one, but I'll share it with you one more. You're not going to want to miss this. How do we know that Jesus really existed? Well, we do. We absolutely do. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149. Be right back. This is The Kale Clark Show, giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. Hey, welcome back to the program. 888-914-9149 is the number to call. 888-914-9149. We're talking about whether or not there is any evidence that Jesus existed. There is tons of evidence that he existed. Uh, An archaeological student on Twitter uh, made this bold claim, and it's been made by a lot of people recently, that Jesus never existed, and uh, she's getting roasted on social media by historians, scholars. And I wanted to share with you, if, if you ever come get challenged with this claim that Jesus wasn't a real historical person, how do you deal with that? And I've been sharing some uh, writings from non-Christian historians outside of the church that vouch for the existence of Jesus. And a lot of the information that we know about him that's also in the New Testament. And some people want to just throw the, the, the Bible out with the bathwater, if you will, and say, well, you, the Bible talks about Jesus. We can't use that as a historical source. Well, I'm not quite so sure about that. Uh, I'll get into that in just a second, too. And really, the, the question is about whether or not, I mean, there, it, is, it is disputed whether there's any archaeological evidence, like physical remains associated with Jesus uh, that are in existence. I would say the Shroud of Turin it's a pretty good bet that that's legit, but I, I wouldn't use it if I was in a debate with a skeptic and they didn't buy into it. There's no need to use it. You can prove Jesus existed without the shroud. But there is one other interesting archaeological find that I do think is associated with Jesus. I'll tell you what that is, too, in just a minute. Once again, 888-914-9149. All right, so I talked about Pliny the Younger, what he said. I talked about the Roman historian Tacitus, maybe the greatest of all time, the goat of Roman historians. I talked about Suetonius, another Roman. Maribar Serapi, another Roman historian. Now I'm going to talk about a Jewish historian that might be the most famous of all from this time. And his name is Flavius Josephus. Oh yes, who wrote the Antiquities of the Jews. He's an interesting dude, very colorful story. I wish we had more time to get into it. But he was involved with um, uh, the uprising that happened in 70 A.D., the, the 66 to 70 A.D., the, the war where uh, a lot of Jewish um, uh, folks uh, basically rose up in the, and, and created a war with the Romans. It wasn't the first one. It wasn't the only one. But this was the one that resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And uh, this was just an absolute um, disaster on the highest level. Uh, for the Jewish people, and it's something that Jesus really prophesied uh, would happen. But Josephus, who was kind of running with the rebels, if you will, um, he, he saved his own skin. And this guy was very obsequious, very, but also very intelligent. He was a survivor. 
when the Roman general Titus uh, conquered Jerusalem. I- I'm leaving out a lot of stuff in the story, but he basically said, uh, hey, don't kill me. Oh, oh, by the way, I'm a prophet, and um, I think you're going to be the emperor one day. You're going to be the Roman emperor. I-, I can just feel it. And he's like, really? Well, maybe I should keep this guy around. Maybe I won't kill this guy. And And that's actually what happened. Titus did become the Roman emperor, so... Obviously, he thought Josephus was a genius. Um, you know, a lot of narcissists are kind of like that, right? So, uh, at any rate, uh, he survived, and he and he kind of got this official position, took on a Roman name, Flavius Josephus. That's why he's called Flavius Josephus. Flava Flav, I guess you could call him. And he wrote this uh, passage in the Antiquities of the Jewish People. And this is this is a disputed passage. A lot of people think it's not real, that he didn't really write this. I, I think it's undeniable that at some point Christians got a hold of this and they doctored the words of Josephus. They added some stuff in to make him say stuff about Jesus that he didn't actually say. But we can still piece together what the original text said. So I'll I'll show you what he wrote about Jesus. And again, he's not a Christian either. And I'll I'll, I'll tip you off to the stuff that that where Christians doctored it, okay? So here's what Josephus said. About this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man. Okay, and at this point, somebody scratched some stuff in, kind of like graffiti. And this is the Christians talking here, if indeed one ought to call him a man. Okay, Josephus never said that. Uh, But let's continue on here. About this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats. Or as one translation has it, he was a doer of wondrous deeds. What do you think that refers to? It refers to the miracles of Jesus, a doer of wondrous deeds uh, who wrought surprising feats. And he was a teacher of such people who accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. And here's where the Christians doctored the text. He was the Messiah. Okay, Josephus never said that. Josephus never said that Jesus was the Messiah. Highly, highly doubtful. And he goes on. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, of course, that's a reference to the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish ruling council, he had him condemned to be crucified. Those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. Okay, now at this point again, The Christians have, uh, if this was a computer program, they would have just taken their mouse and inserted some text here. Uh, But Josephus didn't write this next part, but this was probably written by later Christian interpolators. On the third day, he appeared to them restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. Okay, that might be true, but but Josephus definitely didn't write that. But he did say this, the tribe of Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Now, it's, and then, by the way, Josephus also wrote about James, the bishop of Jerusalem, who was called the quote-unquote brother of the Lord. Was he a, a, a son of Mary? No. But I think it's quite quite plausible he might have been a relative of Jesus. He, so he wrote about James as well and his martyrdom. There's not a chance in the world that, that Josephus wrote all this stuff about Jesus being the Messiah. However, he did write about Jesus. What's interesting, too, is that they found an Arabic copy of Josephus' writings, and all the, the Christian stuff in there was, was not there, so, but, but the other stuff was. So that, that, again, makes it very, very plausible that Josephus did write about Jesus, but just with not all the, uh, the Christian add-ons. 
All right. So he does mention later on in the Antiquities, that was from chapter 18 that I just read to you. In chapter 20, he also talks about um, uh, the death of James, uh, who was called the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ. Okay. So that, that he, so again, he writes about Jesus again in talking about James. All right. So th- those are the major historical writers outside of the New Testament that talk about Jesus, but this is a lot. This is way more than we have for a lot of ancient figures, to be sure. And nobody questions whether they existed, like Alexander the Great, or you know some of the some of the early Roman emperors. But but what what about the New Testament? What about the New Testament? A lot of people say, well, you, you can't trust it because obviously it was written by Christians. It was obviously written by people who believe in Jesus. They're prejudiced. They're biased. They're not writing straight up history. Okay, got a newsflash for you. Everybody is biased. Every single person who's writing history has a bias. Every, and they can't get rid of it. There's no such thing as objective historical writing. Everybody's got a perspective. Everybody has a set of glasses through which they see the world. It doesn't mean that you can't trust what they're saying, but this stuff was not written by robots, okay? So yeah, the earliest members of the church did believe in Jesus and they wrote about him. But that doesn't mean that the stuff isn't historical, okay? So, um, in fact, there's a lot of embarrassing stuff in the New Testament that they never would have put in if they were making up a story. For example, even the crucifixion of Jesus. That's a tough thing to explain. Think about it. It's, it's a tough thing to explain. If you're, if you're trying to convince people in the Roman Empire that they should entrust their, their lives to this guy, and no matter what happens, they might get killed for it. Are you talking about that guy who was crucified uh, outside of Jerusalem? Um dude, don't you know that crucifixion is the worst? They, they, they had to invent a new word for it, excruciating, which comes out, which means out of the cross. They didn't even crucify Roman citizens. It was so bad, they would only do it to non-citizens or people that were just, you know... That's why Paul was beheaded instead of being crucified, because he was a Roman citizen. So, it's the, the most ignominious death you could possibly imagine... In and you want to you want me to believe this guy's Lord of the world? Give me a break! And so that that's why it, it's Mark's gospel in particular, which was written to the city of Rome. It's often been called as his apology for the cross. Not saying, "Oh, I'm sorry this happened," but but how do I explain this? How do I explain this to the Romans? And that's why the centurion is such a big deal. I, on on the Faith Explained program, we did a series on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, some time ago, and and the centurion, I talked about that, how when he kind of runs the lance through Jesus' side after he's dead on the cross, and the blood and the water comes out. Mark doesn't say the blood and the water. John says that. But nonetheless, he sees how he died, and he says, surely this is the Son of God. This man was the Son of God. Now, it's interesting, because the Caesar, the Roman emperor, his boss, went by the title, the Son of God, the divine Son of God. So, no, 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 no. Caesar's not the divine son of God. This guy is. Even though it seems to humanize like anything but, he really is. And so, uh, uh, he's a very, very important figure in the Gospel of Mark. So, you're not going to make up a story about a crucified Messiah. That just doesn't make any sense. Um, We've talked about this before. Around Easter time, I mentioned to you that women are the first to discover the empty tomb and encounter the resurrected Jesus. There was a, an incredible bias against the testimony of women in the first century. They were considered completely unreliable witnesses. I know it's not fair, but that's that's the way it was. You're not going to make that up unless it actually happened that way. What about, what about the conversion of St. Paul? 
Nobody doubts the conversion of St. Paul. No legit scholar doubts that Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee opposed to the church, converted and became the chief evangelist of the early Catholic Church and became known as St. Paul. Nobody doubts that. This happened around 32 or 33 AD, about two or three years after after uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. Nobody doubts that his, well, something made him convert. You know, what happened? So there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways that the New Testament passes the smell test. It gets a lot of things right. Like Luke, who wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, talk about people like Pontius Pilate. He was a real historical figure. They, they found inscriptions. There's one uh, that I've seen with my own eyes. It's in the uh, Israel Museum in Jerusalem, the Pontius Pilate Stone, a very famous inscription. He was a real guy uh, who was a pr- the prefect of Judea. There's people like Herod Antipas, who created Antipas. No, he didn't. I, I should stop using that joke. It's not that funny. Caiaphas, right, the high priest who condemned Jesus to death. Uh, his, his ossuary, his bone box, uh, is also on display in the Jesus of Nazareth exhibit in the Israel Museum, right next to Pilate's inscription. Along with the, the uh, heel bone of a crucified man, another person who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, giving proof of the way that Romans did crucifixions, uh, just as it was laid out in the New Testament. And yeah, it, there, there are no physical remnants of, of, of Jesus' crucifixion. Some say, well, we've got the real nails or we've got the cross. Leaving that aside for a minute, whether those claims are legit or not. There's all kinds of people, places, dates, events, figures that are actually historically verifiable that, that are written about in the New Testament. This is called, this is a $5 word, verisimilitude. Verisimilitude. Verity means truth. It basically means it coheres with reality. It's like a key fitting into a lock. The, it, it makes sense. It gets it right. Um, the New Testament authors talked about real places, customs, institutions, Roman governors, uh, the beliefs of the Pharisees. They got things right. You can corroborate it. Um, so it, it, it does seem to, to, to make sense here. So what about, okay, I promise one last thing. In terms of archaeological evidence for Jesus, I would say the Shroud of Turin is right up there, if it's legit. But again, you don't need to use this to make the case for Jesus. But there's also the famous... James ossuary, the bone box that contained uh, the remnants, the physical remnants of James, the Bishop of Jerusalem, who was in all likelihood a relative of Jesus, according to the flesh. And so what's an ossuary? Well, um, the archaeologist Byron McCain, who who I met when I was in Israel, he's a great guy. He says, quote, an ossuary is a chest or a box made of stone usually, but, but occasionally made of clay or wood, used for secondary burial. That is, the reburial of human bones after the flesh of a corpse has decayed. So this is a custom of the Jews, where they would have a secondary burial. Um, they would gather the bones after the flesh had decomposed. They'd go back in the tomb, collect the bones, put them in an ossuary, a bone box. It only needs to be as big as the longest bone in your body. They put the bones in there, and then they put it in a niche in the family crypt, okay, you know, on a shelf, along with grandpa and great-grandpa and everybody. And the reason why they did that, it might sound comical, but it's really not. It's really great faith. Um, it was for the resurrection. It was in anticipating the resurrection. God's going to put us back together again, as it were. So reburial, 
that we could say a lot about reburial, but the ossuary, the James ossuary, was found outside of Jerusalem. And there's a, there was a big court case about it. All kinds of witnesses were called. Uh, people claimed that the guy who had it was a, was a forger and it wasn't legit. Uh, and this, this ossuary traveled to North America. It was at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, and Bible scholars from all over the world came to see it and check it out. And I went to see it as well. And it was it was pretty pretty uh pretty wild to uh to see this first century. I think it's legit. I think it's been fairly well established that it is legit. And it says on there, James the brother of Jesus. James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. So there you go. Um could it be a stepbrother? That's one tradition in the church. At any rate, um this could in fact be the Jesus that we're talking about here. Uh, it seems likely, but I, I, I talked about this on another uh, occasion during the Faith Explained uh, series that we did on James, bonding with James, I called it. Well, they really had to bond this ossuary back together because unfortunately it broke in transit en route from the Holy Land to North America. It was a disaster, but thankfully there was a, an incredible uh, expert in restoration uh, at the Royal Ontario Museum who was able to to put it back together. But there's a big crack now in the ossuary uh, when you see it. Anyways. Uh, so, I, again, there's more than enough evidence here for you to confidently say, yes, 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 Jesus did really exist, no matter what you think about him. Let's go to the phones right now. Michael is calling from Jacksonville, Florida. Hi, Michael. Hey, Kel, hello. And uh, as I was so Duval, as we say down here, right? <laughs> Duval, yep, absolutely. Uh, we're, get, we're, we're getting there. It's going to be a big season ahead of us. But, uh, uh, for sure. I just... Um, Okay, so uh, I had to think about this. It's, it's, uh, I remember when you just started filling in uh, a few years back, I think it was for Patrick Madrid, mm-hmm. uh, a few other shows. You would fill in, and um, <clears throat> this is actually the second time I've called into you, and, uh, the, and one time I left a message. But uh, the first time was uh, years back when uh, uh, Kobe Bryant was uh, – and his yeah. daughter and all the other countless mm-hmm. people. I mean, the the team that was killed in the helicopter, mm-hmm. helicopter crash. And uh, yep. I would just, um, you know, what people remember uh, about Kobe, but his sports accolades and what have you, and some of the bad stuff that happened in his mm-hmm. life. But yep. uh, as we discussed, you know, he went to mass that morning at 0700 with his yep. daughter prior to getting on that airplane. So you, 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 ex- you expounded on that, and it was wonderful. And I just... Now I've been listening to you, and uh, the last time I just left a message, it was you had the hockey player. I can't remember his name, but I'm oh, not John a Scott. hockey guy. <laughs> yeah, he had the Catholic, the big fella. He said, yeah, how do I explain to my, my kids that, uh, well, dad's fighting. Well, that's a sport. It's different. Uh, and, and my dad was a professional fighter and uh, a boxer, so I totally get in a devout Catholic. You know what I mean? So one's <laughs> a sport, and uh, one, it goes with it. But uh, I just uh, I, I had to call and say thank you for what you do. Uh, both shows, uh, relevant radio. Um, I, you know, I can't give a lot, but I give what I can. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just like uh, Mother Intelligence used to say, somewhere between the bills. Yeah. And I just want to uh, commend you and say thank you, brother, because uh, you keep it real, and uh, you talk in a language I can totally understand, and uh, and and that's it, brother. I mean, and you're spreading the faith, and you're spreading the gospel, and and uh, yep, again in the evening, I'm sitting here. Got the fire, uh, got the barbecue pit, getting a grill going, and wow. a cold adult refreshing beverage. And I'm listening <laughs> to you, and not the music. So 
Thank you, oh, both man. You, brother. Oh, I appreciate that so much, Michael. Man, that means a lot to me. That really does mean a lot. And I wish I was there with you, that fire pit right now. I'll tell you, I could go for some uh, some barbecue myself. But I, I uh, that's 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 a hot call. That's a great call. I really, really appreciate that, Michael. And uh, God bless you, man. I appreciate the encouragement. I need it. I need it. Please pray for me and everybody here at Relevant Radio. But God bless you. I'm so glad that you called. I hope you call back again soon. Well, stick around, Michael, and everybody else, too, because you're really going to like this next story. It's going to be a a lot of fun. Got to take a quick break on The Kale Clark Show. 888-914-9149 is the number. Be right back. Helping you keep your mind off traffic and on the more important things in life. It's Kale Clark on Relevant Radio. That's right. You can get a free phone. That's pretty awesome with Charity Mobile, our sponsor. Really appreciate those guys. You know what else is free? The gospel. The gospel is free of charge. It's heresy that comes with a price, is what my professors used to say. It's so true. And Relevant Radio is also free, and it's free for you to call in, too. 888-914-9149. It's Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Well, there's a lot of talk about Los Angeles, the Dodgers. We'll, we'll deal with that, of course, later in the week. We've already dealt with it before. And the L.A. Dodgers, who broke the color barrier, in Major League Baseball, Jackie Robinson, such pioneers, unfortunately, have become a bigoted organization. I hope that that changes, but uh, inviting and then disinviting and then inviting again. You know the story, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, this absolutely blasphemous anti-Catholic group. They're going to honor them on Friday. Well, that, that's not the only uh, sports-related organization in L.A. with a kind of a, a bigoted past. And a lot of people don't even know about this because I'm talking about the L.A. Country Club, or LACC, and that is the site of the United States Golf Open, which uh, really tees off tomorrow on Thursday. So we're going to get our picks in. We're not going to cheat this time. You know, There's been days when I, we've made the picks on the Thursday, and the tournament's technically already started. So uh, we want to be above board here. We're going to make our staff picks here in just a minute. But what's really intriguing about this golf course is that very few people have ever seen it before this week uh, on television. Of course, everybody knows it exists, but uh, very few players have actually played it. Um, For years, for over a 100 years, the United States Golf Association has been trying to get the U.S. Open played at this course, and they've always said no. The members have always said no. In 1986, uh, they tried to get it, and it was voted down 5-4. to It was really close, but it didn't happen. And so this is kind of of the... um, you know, in some ways, the the I don't know the the what's the word I'm looking for? It's 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 the the white whale that that that, that people have been trying to find for for ages. And anyway, so it's 126 years old. This golf course, it is more exclusive than Augusta National, and it, it was uh, actually designed um, in 1921 by W. Herbert Fowler of England. But really, it's well known for being redesigned in 1928 by George Thomas who also is responsible for Riviera, another beautiful course in California, and also Bel Air. And uh, it's a very uh, interesting course uh, layout-wise. It's very rustic, canyons, uh, jagged bunkers. And there's something called now, I I hope I'm pronouncing this right, but uh, people in Southern California, maybe even Patrick Alog, he'll probably set me straight on this, Barranca. Am I saying that right? What, What are these... It's rugged, dry barranca. What is that? They're kind of like gullies or ditches with, with growth and vegetation in them, partially for drainage, but makes for some pretty tricky uh, 
uh, escape artists in, in terms of if your ball, if your golf ball uh, ends up in one of these things. And uh, the course was recently redesigned by uh, architect Gil Hans and Jeff Shackelford in 2010. Uh, kind of, they wanted to get it back to the original uh, vision of George Thomas. By the way, if, you, if you're a golf fan, if you like golf journalism, we've been talking a lot about the whole Live Golf, um, PGA Tour, <laughs> wild storyline over the past little while. Uh, Jeff Shackelford's a good guy. He, he has a, um, a Substack uh, a newsletter. It's called The Quadrilateral. He writes mostly about the majors, uh, the four majors. That's why he calls it The Quadrilateral. Uh, check it out. He's really, really good. At any rate, um, so a lot of players are excited to play this course. They've never seen it before. And it's got quite a history. It's got quite a history, and it's, it's a complicated one. And there's a really, really nice piece uh, in The Athletic by Brady, uh, Brody Miller, excuse me, uh, who put this out yesterday in The Athletic about the history of the LACC. There was once a Texas oil man, he says, named Frank Rosenberg, who tried to get in and try to become a member at the LA Country Club. He had bucks. He had all kinds of uh, oil money, as you can imagine. But he was turned away. And he was turned away because of his last name, Rosenberg. Uh, they thought he was Jewish, which he actually wasn't. But they, they turned him away on that account. And so he actually tried to go, Rosenberg tried to, to join the nearby Hillcrest Country Club, another L.A. club. And that actually got started because L.A. Country Club wouldn't allow Jewish members. So they started Hillcrest. And the Hillcrest members wouldn't take him either because he told them, I'm not actually Jewish. So he, the poor guy uh, couldn't win it either way. But unfortunately, just like uh, Augusta Nationals history, there was a lot of bigotry uh, involved with L.A. Country Club. In fact, it didn't have any Jewish members until the 1970s, if you can admit, believe that. And the first black member wasn't admitted until 1991. That's, that's unconscionable. It's hard to imagine something like this happening in Los Angeles, but that was the case. Women uh, were still required to play in dresses or skirts until the turn of the century. And I mean the 21st century. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's a, a women's an amateur tournament that took place there once. It was raining, so they had to wear garbage bags over their legs because they weren't allowed to wear pants. You, you might remember the old comedian Groucho Marx who once said, I would never join any club that would have me as a member. That actually comes from him being rejected, allegedly, for membership at L.A. Country Club. And, and very famously, they, they wouldn't allow any entertainers in Los Angeles and Hollywood to become members. Um Bing Crosby bought a house off of the 14th fairway, assuming that he would become a member one day, and he was sadly mistaken. You know what happens when you assume things, right? You make a donkey out of you and me. Well, that happened to him. And uh, Hugh Hefner uh, bought his mansion, the famous mansion, in uh, 1971, right off the 13th green. He couldn't get in either. Uh, he got so mad about it, he built a bird sanctuary, which had all these squawking birds that would annoy the golfers. Um so th this is this is it has kind of a a, a checkered past. Now, obviously, uh, that has changed; it's modernized, uh, but it's still a, uh, an interesting place that hardly anybody has ever actually seen. I think you'll find it an intriguing. If you're a fan of golf, you'll find it an interesting place to uh, to host an open, and uh, there'll be lots of uh, intriguing shots and shot makers that will be needed to succeed here. So, all right, let's let's make our staff picks, Patrick Alog. If you want to make it in here, uh, we will. Uh, Try to make the best of it here. All right, Patrick, I'm going to let you go first. I want you to pick who you think is going to win the United States Open of Golf this year. And also give me a dark horse candidate. I'm For my winner pick, Norway's Victor Hovland. 
Hovland. Yeah, runner-up at the PGA Championship. Yeah, he nearly won yeah. it, so he's he's pretty hot right now. And Victor Hovland, a uh, cool guy. He actually, right, the day after he he finished second at the PGA, he caddied for one of his old college friends in a tournament and just like... <laughs> You know, you know, drag the bag around the course. What a cool guy! So, Victor Hovland's your your winner. And what about a dark horse? A dark horse is England's Tommy Fleetwood. So, I'm not picking any Americans. Tommy Fleetwood came second in the in the Canadian Open last week, mm-hmm. and uh, it was won by a Canadian Nick Taylor. Dramatic win, really exciting. Everybody here is excited about that. I think on any other day, people would have been cheering for Tommy Fleetwood. He's a really popular player, so mm-hmm. he's your dark horse. All right, sounds good. All right, producer Jim. <laughs> All right, yeah. I know so, you're not a golf guy, but well, you, you might, you might going, strike gold. Yeah, here. I'm going with uh, Sergio Garcia to win Sergio. the U.S. Open. Wow. And then okay. my dark horse is Jacob Solomon. Jacob, that's a really dark horse. I don't even one. know who this guy is, I, and I, I follow golf. I, I figured that was my goal, Patrick. <laughs> Jacob, Sol- <laughs> Jacob Solomon. All right, digging deep uh, there. Wow. Okay, so if Jacob wins, um, whew, this, this could be a wager that, that pays off here, but... Uh, not that we have, we don't, there's no money exchange here. We are a charity. Nobody wins anything for getting this right. Trust me on that. It's just for pride. I'm going to go as my, for my winner, I'm going to pick uh, LA's own Max Homa. Max Homa. That'll be Max. a very popular win. Yeah, it would be. And uh, he, he's done well on uh, George Thomas Designs uh, in, in the past. And uh, he's done well at Riviera. And he actually played. He's one of the few golfers on tour who's actually played uh, the L.A. Country Club. He played it in the Pac-12 Championship uh, when he was uh, a college player. So I-, I think he's got the game to pull it off. You're going to need a lot of accuracy. Um, so I- I'm going to go with him as your winner. And Dark Horse Candidate, I'm actually going to go with um, Ricky Fowler. Ricky Fowler. That's right, former Players Champion. Uh, Really popular golfer, really popular golfer. His game's been off recently, but uh, he's got one of the prettiest iron swings I've ever seen. If, he, I, if I could, if I could copy anybody's iron game, it'd be Ricky Fowler. He's another guy from California as well. Yep, also from California, and uh, he used to have the flow. He's kind of cut his hair in recent years, but he's been working a lot with Butch Harmon, uh, Tiger's former coach, on his game, and I think he's got his putting. He's having, he's having a very quiet, but a very solid season uh, overall, and I think, I think he might do well on this track. So we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. It's going to be fun starting tomorrow. The United States Open at L.A. Country Club. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, we've had an incredible show. Jose in San Benito. I'm sorry, man. We ran out of time. I see that you're calling there. Call back tomorrow. We'll get you in. Promise. All right? I promise I'll be there for you as well. It's Kale Clark Show. Only on Relevant Radio. Jim Shaper produced. Patrick Hale. I took your phone calls. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.